This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go, and holding, hoping, hoping the voice holds out. I've been fighting this virus for like three weeks, and I just, I can't seem to shake it. And it's the weather, right? Up and down, cold and hot. You never know how to dress. You wake up, it's 60 degrees, or what is that in uh, metric? (laughs) Metric. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still imperial. I'm still in the old imperial system. Uh, means nothing to you, I know, Tim. Anyway, uh, you wake up, it's, it's chilly. By midday, it's up in the 80s or up in the 20s, 30s Celsius. Don't know how to dress, and so you get sick. Maybe a lot of you are probably suffering the same thing. Anyway, we hope the voice holds out. If I start to sound like uh, Tom Waits, not a bad thing. I like Tom, but uh, it, it may come to that towards the end of the broadcast. Thanks for joining me. Ah, I, I uh, was reading about this gentleman that uh, that blew the whistle on. Uh, he was the one that leaked the information about the National Security Agency and uh, Verizon, and and uh, uh, you know, t- tapping all the uh, the phone call, every phone call. We we all know that, right? They're watching. The TV's watching us. There was an article recently about the dishwasher. Some CIA director saying we're going to make it so the dishwasher can spy on you. Anyway, this this guy that blew the whistle on the NSA has moved to Hong Kong. And said, I cannot live in a country that would do something like that. And, and I have to admire that. But it's not easy being a whistleblower these days. We, used to, we should be valuing these people that are saying, hold on, there's something illegal and something corrupt here. And I'm willing to go to jail, if need be, to let people know that's going on. It's not easy being a whistleblower. It's a tough road. And many of them pay dearly. And I think many of them are heroes. And I think one such is about to join us. She's a former senior legal counsel with the World Bank. She's pretty high up on the ladder. And she's trying to draw attention. She's making these allegations, serious allegations, about corruption at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and how the World Bank... And the global financial system, really, is being dominated by just a small group of corrupt, power-hungry figures 
centered around the privately owned, wait for it, U.S. Federal Reserve. And unfortunately, it's very difficult for her to get the word out because the corporately owned prostitutes, as uh, some call them, and I happen to agree with that moniker, are not giving her a voice. Well, we're going to do that tonight. And I'm very pleased to welcome Senior Legal Counsel Whistleblower Karen Hudez to the program. Karen, how are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, let's uh, give people a, a clear understanding what the World Bank is. I, I know that it, it emerged, you know, out of the uh, the Second World War, uh, together with the uh, the International Monetary Fund as part of the the Bretton Woods Agreement. But explain the purpose of the World Bank. Yes, the World Bank is a fund, and the International Monetary Fund is a bank. That's a joke that they make. It's. Uh, a co-op of 188 countries. It was 44 countries who negotiated the Bretton Woods treaties. And what the World Bank is actually is it's a tool which has been hijacked. So it's gotten a very bad name for itself, but uh, I can assure the listeners that it's um, it's like a car, um, which if the owner of the car starts driving it recklessly, uh, you, you can say, well, it's a terrible car, but if somebody else starts to drive it a little more responsibly, it's not a bad car. And so I can tell you, I know the um, underlying fundamentals of the Bretton Woods treaties, and they are a fabulous tool that's there for the 188 countries. It's part of what you call, as a lawyer, the global commons. It belongs to the whole world. It's an institution which was created at the end of World War II. Uh, actually, its most important function, and it's the one that we need it for badly at this point, to prevent future war. If I, and if I understand correctly, uh, Karen, the, the idea was, you know, during the uh, after the Second World War, rather, and you had, uh, uh, you know, President Truman's Marshall Plan in an attempt to, to rebuild Europe, which was laying in ruin, economic ruin. So the, the World Bank and the IMF uh, were were uh, were designed to bring about some economic stability to the region. And, and since then, these organizations ostensibly are used to to help uh, rebuild economies, uh, especially in the developing world. The IMF, of course, we hear in conjunction with, with projects uh, around the world and so forth. But that's what they were intended to do, correct? Yes, but there are hidden agendas and there are wheels within wheels. And so there are a lot of people um, who say that it's a debt trap to, uh, to encumber unwary countries and give the um, wealthy countries a, a tool to uh, blackmail them with. Um, but if you, if you use the financing for good projects that earn a lot of money for the countries, it's not a debt trap. So it, it all depends on how, how this resource, this global resource is used. And the, to me, as a lawyer, I can tell you what I think the most important feature of these instruments are. They're instruments. Um, and that is law. 
and as a lawyer, um, I was very interested in development. I studied development economics, and if you if you're interested in development, that's a good place to go. And the man who was there when the treaties were negotiated and was the longest-serving general counsel was a Dutch lawyer by the name of Aaron Brochus. And Aaron Brochus gave me the operation manual. A lot of people think the presidency of the World Bank is the most important office, but it's actually the legal function, because that function serves as a hinge between the board. The World Bank is not like the UN, where every country gets one vote. Countries' votes are weighted in accordance with their shareholding, and they're only allowed to have shareholding um, roughly proportional to their economies. So the biggest, most powerful country in the World Bank is the U.S., but that's only 16%. And the seven biggest economies each get their own executive director, and the rest of the countries get grouped in what they call constituencies. So you've got 25 executive directors who have a residential function to run the bank. But what happened at the very beginning was the um, United States president of the World Bank said, I don't want the board meddling in management of this institution. I want to have a convention where the board only serves as a rubber stamp and votes up or down what the president proposes. And when I saw what was going on with the corruption, I went to the board and I said, this is not part of the articles. And when you've got a corrupt president, which is what we unfortunately had, what I saw, I said, you as a board are required to take back the function in the articles of agreement. You have got to start initiating actions. And the day after I said that, I was locked out of the World Bank. I was no longer allowed in the door. All right. We should uh, explain also. Uh, uh, Karen Hudes joins us, a, um, a former uh, member of the World Bank's legal department. Explain uh, your role in the legal department at the World Bank. Well, I think the best way to explain it is to use the word nag. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, um, all joking aside, after I got fired and before I got fired, um, there was a network of whistleblowers who knew what the World Bank was supposed to do, what the rules were, and who were getting punished for trying to get the World Bank on track. And we have stayed in touch and we have helped each other through thick and thin. There's one of us from the UK, one of us from Ethiopia, one of us from Mexico. Um, it's just a, a group of, I guess you could say, um, self-appointed righteous people or whatever you want to call us. We're whistleblowers. And we understand what the World Bank needs to be at this time for the world to keep the world out of a terrible crisis. And we're very active. And after I got fired um, and was trying to figure out what on earth was going on, um, I stumbled across, I didn't actually stumble across, the UK whistleblower said, Karen, you better check out some of these SEC whistleblowers. They seem to be on to something. And I ran across um, a whistleblower named Mark Novitsky. Uh, and the two of us have been sort of working in tandem to try to help each other figure out who's doing what to whom and what needs to happen. So at this point, um, the World Bank is uh, its an organization which has a very active bunch of whistleblowers, and some of these whistleblowers are very well connected to their governments. 
Now, yes. the, the the directors of the World Bank from the various member countries, I'm guessing, for example, in the United States, many of those uh, uh, directors would come from places like Chase, uh, the Chase Manhattan Bank or City or City Group or uh, Goldman Sachs. Is that correct? Well, um, they are all very much subservient to those interests. And I can tell you that that's been a huge problem. They have not represented the citizens of the United States. They have abused their authority. They, and they have they have been in, tempt, in contempt of Congress because Congress at a certain point saw how the World Bank was getting hijacked and was corrupt. And um, you know, first, you know, before I was fired, Senator Luger wrote three letters saying, don't fire this lady. Well, they promptly fired me. And then three senators asked for a government accountability audit, government accountability office audit. Senators Luger, Leahy and Bayh. That was in 2008. The World Bank refused. That's contempt of Congress. And now what Congress has said, when the World Bank came to Congress and asked for a capital increase, Congress said, now that you haven't complied with our GAO inquiry into corruption, we are not going to disperse a penny of that appropriation until whistleblowers are made whole. So the um, U.S. capital increase is not going through. You, and you have a, a stalemate. You have a stalemate. And I can tell you that the problems between Congress and the World Bank are a microcosm of this terrible corruption on the capital markets, because the World Bank offers bonds on the capital markets. So it has to comply with the securities laws. And I went to all of the states. I went to the governors and the um, attorneys general. And after the U.S. court system showed itself to be corrupt, which they did on my case, the same judges who heard the Guantanamo Bay were given a panel. They gave an illegal opinion. They were required to consider the case de novo. And instead, they gave an unpublished opinion, which said, we like what the lower court said. Well, that's irrelevant, because they have to write a reasoned opinion as if the lower court hadn't decided the case. So what they wrote was, it, it wasn't proper. And the clerk ignored my statement to him that the 188 ministers of finance and I had agreed to settle the case. So the opinion of that panel was irrelevant. Right. And the court, the clerk refused that. So I went to the chief justice of the Supreme Court and the rest of the judicial conference. And I said, you seem to have a problem in your court of appeal for the DC circuit. That clerk doesn't understand when a case has been settled. So you've got corruption at the highest level of the U.S. courts. Back with more of my conversation with World Bank whistleblower Karen Hudez when we return. Stay with us. So, Karen, I, I want to just touch briefly on um, your uh, arrest, be, being charged uh, by the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, what, what did that entail? What happened there? It's totally illegal. I was given a badge to enter the spring meetings on April 19th, 20th, and 21st. The chairman of the development committee gave me a badge so that I could enter the meetings. And I did on the 19th. And then when I went back on the 20th, I was prevented from going in with a valid badge. I said, who thinks they have more authority than the countries that own the World Bank? Who's keeping me out? Well, it was the Secret Service that was keeping me out. 
I said, no, you, you know, on what grounds are you preventing me from going into a meeting where I have a valid security badge? So I went, I, I stayed on the outside and I spoke with various delegations to tell them about the problem that I was having. And then what I did the next day was I wrote a letter to the um, director of the Secret Service, but first I cleared it with all the countries saying there's no ground to lock her out, she's admitted. And then I showed up and what they did was they took a piece of paper, they had an underling at the World Bank sign it saying that I was not allowed in. I said, this underling has no authority to overrule 188 ministers of finance. This piece of paper is worthless. And then when I was, um, the next week, I sent a number of emails to a number of people, including the commissioner of the DC police. And I said, if you have any doubt whether I'm allowed to go back in, you had better check with the chairman of the development committee who represents 188 ministers of finance. That person who signed this piece of paper cannot overrule that man. And the, the thing that's really interesting is that there's a group called Allied Barton. They provide the security personnel. Allied Barton is controlled by this group of international bankers. So in other words, just to summarize, you were first you were fired by the World Bank uh, because you were basically embarrassing them with these, you know, with these uh, corruption charges. Well, and it's then, not exactly that I was fired. I wasn't fired. I was illegally locked out of the building. There uh, but, I mean, was I mean, no authority to fire me. I'm sorry. I, I meant not, prior I to that. I was never fired. I meant prior to that. And then that's when the 188 member uh, finance ministers wanted you reinstated. Correct. Okay. They reinstated me. It's not that they wanted me reinstated. I was reinstated. You were reinstated. Okay. So, I was reinstated, yes. So then you attempt to to uh, uh, gain entry into the uh, the spring meeting, and you're told you're persona non grata, uh, and so when basically you're charged with trespassing. Is that correct? Okay. Yes. The, well, yes and no, because, okay, I can show you the piece of paper. The the person who would hear a trespassing charge is the District of Columbia, because it's not a federal offense. No, I did. No, of course not. Right. But the person who's going to be prosecuting me is the feds. So what am I charged with by the feds? That's not a federal offense. I don't know. I, I wrote to Eric Holder because I have been going back to the FBI since you know, there have been all kinds of illegal things that happened. One of the illegal things was I had a brief due in the court and somebody hacked my computer and erased it six hours before the, the filing deadline. And they erased every single copy in my computer, except they put a few in there with no sites. And it takes hours to get the sites up. Luckily, I had sent two weeks earlier in the clouds an earlier draft that had a lot of the sites. I stayed up all night and I filed this in time. But then I went to the FBI and I said it's illegal to hack a lawyer's computer in advance of a filing deadline. I want you to find out who did this. They never did. And there have been all kinds of other irregularities. And I went, finally, I went to the National Center for White Collar Crime, and I said, you know, the FBI seems to be having a problem here. They don't know what their job is. Could you, could you please give them a hand? Because, I mean, emails were not getting through. There was all kinds of hacking. I have a website. That website wasn't functioning. I mean, I have documented all of the, um, the cyber crimes. There have been a lot of cyber crimes. 
and nothing ever happened. So I went, I went to Eric Holder and I said, you know, we seem to have this problem here. Um, you haven't ever done anything about the complaints that I've given you about the cyber crimes. And now I'm being charged on breaking um, a barring notice that was never validly issued because the person who signed it could not commit the World Bank had no authority to overrule 188 ministers of finance. What on earth do you think you're doing? Now, you've been arraigned for a hearing that's coming up in, in, in just about a week. And I, I should point out for my Canadian listeners, uh, Eric Holder is a uh, U.S. Attorney General. So you're being prosecuted by Eric Holder's Department of Justice, charged with an unlawful entry, uh, w- with unlawful entry, which is not a federal offense. Uh, so, uh, I mean, what are you going to represent yourself? Good question. <laughs> you know, you know the statement: a lawyer who represents themselves has a, a fool for a client. Um, I've asked a couple of groups. Um, I haven't heard back from them. It, by default, I may have to. Um, we'll see what happens. What I really want, though, is I really want these charges dropped. And so I have been in touch with a lot of people. Um, I understand from. Uh, one of the the people I'm in touch with in Canada, that the um, chief of staff for your prime minister has resigned, as well as two senators. I haven't had a chance to find out what that is. Well, these are these are uh, uh, there are three conservative senators that uh, were investigated uh, for. Um uh, essentially, uh, expenses, expense accounts, abusing expense accounts. And uh, one senator, high-profile senator, a media uh, a star here in Canada, uh, Mike Duffy, um, had rung up about 90000 in expenses, travel expenses, that were rejected. And he was supposed to pay those back. He couldn't. And so the prime minister's uh, aide essentially wrote him a personal check for 90000 which, of course, breaks all sorts of ethical uh, rules and so forth. So uh, the PMO aide resigned. The uh, Two of the three senators in question have, uh, have uh, resigned from caucus, although they haven't, been, they haven't resigned from the Senate, which is very difficult to do. It's very, very difficult to get someone out of the Senate. Anyway, I just uh, Karen Hudez is with us uh, from uh, the World Bank whistleblower. And uh, I want to uh, get back to... The, the corruption charges. I, um, I've spoke with, <clears throat> excuse me, I've spoken with uh, John Perkins on a number of uh, occasions, the author of uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Are you familiar with, with John? At, at, at yeah, I, I've read his book. I don't know him personally, but I, I admire his book. Yes. Now, now he, he speaks to a lot of the things I think you're alluding to, uh, how the World Bank uh, and the IMF essentially ensnare uh, these countries, especially in the developing world, uh, you, you know where they where they are forced to uh, borrow uh, billions and billions of dollars to keep their economy afloat, uh, and then in order to pay it back, the IMF or the World Bank impose these incredible austerity measures. Of course, we're seeing this playing out right now in Greece. Uh, and so, what happens is the the these countries uh, they're essentially looted. Uh, I, I know in a number of cases in South America where countries have been forced to sell off their public water utilities, they've been privatized. I think the corporation Nestle's now owns the water supply in some of these countries. Uh, in Greece, of course, we've seen mass looting of industries over there. Uh, is is that the sort of thing that you're talking about here? Um, that I've, I'm familiar with the theories about debt trap, debt entrapment. And let's say that that's a very broad brush. And I'm sure that you would agree if there's a very good 
project, which is going to have a rate of return that surpasses the financing, that's a good thing to invest in. So you can't say that the World Bank is entirely a debt trap. Um, if you have a country where the leadership is very um, astute and they only sign on to really good projects, then the World Bank is a good place. But unfortunately, we don't have that leadership all in every country. So it's a mixture. It's a mixed bag. And the same thing about who works at the World Bank. What you have is you have um, a group of absolutely phenomenal civil servants and who have been fired for trying to do their jobs. I'll give you an example of one of them. Um, he was uh, fired for trying to prevent a cost overrun on the headquarters rebuilding. And he's now, he doesn't call himself a whistleblower. He's now working, uh, he was Australian, he's now working on projects for China. But you have consummate professionals who see their job as trying to put really good projects in developing countries. and. After we were fired for trying to straighten out the World Bank, and I'll tell you what the corruption is at the World Bank. The corruption is the abuse of authority by a group that's not even in the World Bank, but is using the World Bank by corrupting its officials and hijacking the World Bank. The World Bank is a tool that can save the world from war. There's a currency war that will happen if we do not take back the World Bank for the people of the world. Some would and say that currency that, some would say that currency war is now underway. Of course, the Japanese are um, you know devaluating their currency even at a greater rate than the United States is. The US is pouring 85 billion dollars a month into this black hole. Japan somewhere on the order of 100 billion a month. Uh, we're seeing currencies being debased basically all around the world. Some might suggest we're in the we're in the midst of a currency war right now. That's exactly right. And the chance that it deteriorates and become something which is irreversible, we're right on the edge. And the way to stay out of it, I, by the way, I, I think we will stay out of it. There's a very accurate stakeholder analysis that uses game theory modeling, and it's, it predicted when I started testifying in front of the UK Parliament, it said all the people of the world are going to find out what's what, and they're going to all help you get rule of law and prevent a currency war. And that's part of this radio broadcast. That's how you heard about me. And I want your listeners to link up with all the other people that are understanding now that we are not inevitably sinking into a currency war. Au contraire, we are now all working for rule of law. We're going to get a kind of a situation that never happens, but we need desperately. And that is where the whistleblowers win and win big time. That, and by the way, the U.S. Congress, when they approved the World Bank capital increase, they put a provision in there that said, we are appropriating the money, but we will not disperse it until the whistleblowers are made whole. And they put that in there for me and the other whistleblowers who need to have rule of law to prevent a currency war. I showed the U.S. Congress this very accurate stakeholder analysis. I showed this analysis to Secretary Hagel. The Defense Department got in touch with me when I complained to the um, Inspector General in the Defense Department. I said, if we don't start playing by the rules, the world is sinking into a currency war. You know this analysis. 
Let me just jump in here, Karen. We'll take a timeout. We'll come back and continue our conversation. Karen Hudez is a whistleblower with the World Bank, and you're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are back with Karen Hudez from the World Bank, former uh, member of the legal department there who has been charged uh, with unlawful entry. Keeping in mind that's not a federal crime, but it's being, she's being prosecuted by the U.S. Justice Department. Uh, so go figure. Uh, why were these charges brought? Perhaps, uh, most likely, because uh, Karen has uh, charged the World Bank uh, or accused the World Bank of, of corruption. And uh, now she's paying perhaps the ultimate price. Now, uh, let me let me go back to the currency wars for a moment because this is important. Off, you know, throughout history, we see trading uh, currency wars leading to trading wars, ultimately leading to world wars. Uh, this is the road we might be heading down. These are the this is the this is what is at stake here. So, could you explain sort of the mechanics of of how the World Bank, uh, what what the World Bank has to do with a currency war? How are the two connected? Yes. All right. The the main reason the World Bank was created was to prevent war. That's how it's that's its uh, most um, pressing mandate. And so so getting back to that business about the person from the Defense Department contacting me, um, the Defense Department used a very powerful analytic tool, a stakeholder analysis using game theory modeling, and this same stakeholder analysis. Um, was done on a macro scale to model the transition of power from the East to the West. And it said that if we used rule of law, there would be um, a period of transition that would be smooth. We would avoid a world war. And that is exactly where we are right now. And what I said to the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court when the D.C. Court of Appeals refused to recognize a decision by the ministers of finance at the World Bank to settle my lawsuit. I bought a World Bank bond, so the World Bank was not immune in court, and I went into court, and here's where the corruption comes up. Whenever anybody sees money going the wrong way at the World Bank and reports it, they get fired. Now, this is real money at the World Bank, so money is going every which way. And two of the World Bank whistleblowers that I'm working with reported that there were funds that were going misspent or double booking. So the auditing and accounting function is broken. So what you have is you have Enron at the World Bank. And as a securities lawyer, I know, and as a bondholder, I know that when officials, legal officials, accounting officials inside a bank are fired for reporting that the money is not being properly accounted. This is corruption. This is corruption big time. And so I reported this to the SEC, and the SEC took a pass on this. I reported this to something called the National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies, the NAC. That's chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury. It's got the, the chairman of the Fed on it. It's got the chairman of the SEC on it. It's got the chairman of all of the other um, economic entities, the Exim Bank, the um, Trade Representative, Commerce Department. Anyway, I told the NAC that there was improper accounting. I sued KPMG at the same time. I went to the UK Serious Fraud Office, and the UK Serious Fraud Office called the SEC in October uh, 2010. 
and the SEC stonewalled the serious fraud office. Now that is corruption, big time, big time, big time. So when the UK Parliament asked how the DFID was doing in overseeing UK's uh, funding of development, you better believe I had something to say. So did the UK whistleblower have something to say. Uh, and then I went back to Parliament a second time. And then just recently, one of the committees in UK Parliament said, how are we doing on handling complaints? And I went back to them. I said, you're doing a lousy job. I've been complaining to you guys for years and you're sitting on your hands and there's world corruption that's going to lend the world in a currency war. And we're about to enter something called gold backwardation, which is when people no longer trust paper money and they will not sell gold at any price. And when you enter that, it's meltdown. Well, meltdown so that you have a world depression that makes what happened in the 30s look like nothing happened. I uh, I, I want to talk to you about gold and, and what appears to be – I'm a bit of a gold bug. And oh, I, I want to talk to you about manipulation in the gold market because anyone who's been following that, you know, who who suddenly at 2 o'clock in the morning looking at the, uh, the price sees some algorithm kick in and gold and silver get smashed. Uh, obviously, uh, I mean, to, to my eyes and the people that I follow, uh, you know, the Jim Embrys uh, uh, and other gold bugs, this is a clear sign of manipulation because, uh, you know, buying into gold is a, vo a vote against the fiat currency, which is exactly what the, the Fed and the central planners don't want us to do. But le let me uh, let me take a time out. We'll come back and, and I'll get your take on the, uh, the manipulation of gold uh, and whether there is any gold at Fort Knox. And uh, we'll do that on the other side. Karen Hudez, whistleblower from the World Bank, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Karen Hudez stays with us for a few moments yet as we continue to discuss corruption at the World Bank. These are the uh, the charges she's making as a whistleblower, and uh, she has been arraigned for a hearing uh, in about a week's time on uh, unlawful entry uh, charges. Again, this is uh, not a federal offense, but she's being prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, this seems to be in retaliation uh, for her whistleblowing efforts. It's a, it's a very difficult time to be a whistleblower, uh, certainly in the United States. Uh, so let me, uh, let me go back to gold here for a moment, uh, uh, Karen. And, and I don't know if there's a connection here. I think there is. Uh, I mean, I, I alluded to earlier to uh, you know Goldman Sachs, and, and perhaps they might be pulling some strings at the World Bank, uh, and and they're the ones that uh, you know uh, were advising their their uh, their clients sell gold, sell gold. We're uh, reevaluating our forecast. We're we're saying it's going down to ten fifty or eleven fifty based on absolutely no data. This caused you know this naked uh, short uh, run on on gold, and the, and the price crashed in mid April. Uh, meanwhile, these uh, these bullion banks and and Goldman Sachs are buying gold with two fists at these bargain basement prices, there's clearly, I think, some manipulation going on in the gold market. We had the case of the German uh, central bank asking for its gold back. It was stored in the United States, uh, I guess, just after the Second World War. The, the, uh, the United States says, well, we can give you some of it, but it's going to take seven years to repatriate your gold, which is very odd. We have rumors that uh, the, the gold reserves uh, uh, supposedly held at Fort Knox are not there, and this is the reason the United States cannot repatriate Germany's gold. What's your take on, on, uh, on the situation with gold? <laughs> yes. Absolutely everything you're saying, um, I've got a lot to say on that. I want to say two sentences before I say that because I don't want people to be alarmed. 
And so everything that I'm telling your listeners, I told to the U.S. governors. I told it to the U.S. attorneys general. I told it to the chief justices of the state Supreme Courts. And so um, we're not headed to a situation of panic, just the opposite. We're headed to a situation of cleanup. And so what you're seeing here with all of this manipulation is you're seeing the people who have been grabbing power illegally are trying to get every single chit off the table before their time is up. That's all you see. You don't see the fundamental governance structure is intact. We don't have to worry about um, hoarding gold and we don't have to worry unless, God forbid, we don't have this rule of law that I'm talking to you about today. But I think we do because I have been in touch with all these countries. I've been writing them for years. Now, let's go back to gold in Germany. Yes. Germany, before they repatriated gold, they said, we'd like to see our gold. They were told they couldn't see it. And then the Office of the Inspector General in the Treasury Department sent them a fake audit, a paper audit, which was not satisfactory to the Germans. It was just the opposite, because don't forget when I was asking for the NAC to resolve this rule of law problem, and when the serious fraud office was asking for the SEC to resolve this rule of law problem, the financial statements of the World Bank, it's like a Bernie Madoff situation. If you don't have an accurate audit, if you have a, a government accountability audit being stonewalled by the World Bank, and then you have KPMG keeping, preventing their audit team from finding out about these problems, you have got what, just bells going off. And if you've got bells going off and the Treasury Department is not intervening, then the Treasury Department has no credibility. The Office of the Inspector General, who gives a paper audit to Germany, is not credible not credible at all. So Germany, getting this piece of paper from the office of the inspector general, said, oh, no, I, sorry, I want, I want my real gold back because you're giving me paper and you're not letting my people see my gold. Okay, so that's, that's what is now setting everybody off with all of these bells. And then when you have this differential, this price differential between money, uh, gold that you have in your hand and paper gold being sold with a naked short. This is so anybody who had gold at a bullion bank went there and physically repossessed their gold. This is days away from permanent backwardation when you will not be able to finance trade. You cannot have this. And so I knowing that we need to have absolute rule of law now, not, you know, I said to the governors of the um of the states. I said, we cannot be kicking this can down the road anymore. We have got to show that this is a law-abiding country. I said the same thing to Secretary Hagel. I said, and that is why I am going back inside the World Bank. It was not because I wanted to be cute. It was because I was looking at the markets and the timing and that we didn't want to be on the edge any closer than we were. So when I was let off in handcuffs, this was just what we didn't need. This was just what we didn't need. Well, let me ask you, though, is are Germany's concerns warranted? Is the gold there or has it been lent out uh, uh, as, as part of this manipulation? 
I seriously doubt whether there is any gold left, but I can tell you what happened for me in the middle of all of this. I, I get all kinds of weird offers. For example, I got somebody offering to write, to help me write things, and that person wrote in there that if I ended up in jail, I was gonna be killed. That is a death threat. Oh my. Okay, that's what, that's what goes on. Okay, so I was looking on my Facebook page, and all of a sudden there was an article there that there was a convoy of trucks leaving Fort Knox with gold. And it was gonna take a week for them to get all of the gold moved out of Fort Knox. So I looked at that thing, I said, gee, that is kind of, you know, weird. And I didn't do anything. And the next day, all of a sudden that was posted on somebody's internet site. But as I told you, we whistleblowers are pretty savvy and we don't just take things at face value. And one of the whistleblowers said to me, you know that site that has this thing about the gold leaving Fort Knox, that's not a trusted site. So what I did was I went back to my Facebook page to, um, to download this and it had disappeared from my Facebook page again. So I went to all the governors, I went to the governor of Texas and I said, I am getting disinformation about gold in Fort Knox. They obviously want me to tell you that this is happening when it's not a trusted news source. So what happened was me and the whistleblowers managed to show that somebody is trying to discredit me on this very subject. They were using your Facebook page as the, your Facebook page as presumably the source for this, for this story. But again, I guess the question is, okay, so maybe in that instance, it's not true. The, the trucks were not moving gold out of Fort Knox. But How would I know? Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. But, but isn't it kind of strange that the people in the United States don't know whether we have gold or whether the Fort Knox is empty? Isn't that a strange past to be in? Uh, it's it's very strange. Although given the times, uh, I I don't know what to, what to call strange and what is uh, <laughs> what's just the new normal. Uh, Karen Hudes is with us, a whistleblower with the uh, the World Bank. Uh, just stay, staying with gold for a few moments yet. Um, if the gold has been moved out of uh, uh, Fort Knox, I mean, what what does that mean? What what is the significance of that? When people say there is no gold in Fort Knox. People might be scratching their heads saying, okay, so? We're talking now about fiat money, money that has no gold backing. And we're talking about the continuing use of the dollar for financing international trade. These are very important subjects. And I don't have any answers, but I do have um, advice. One piece of advice is that the United States has got to be credible we are not credible. We have lost our credibility. And there's nothing that's going to make people run away from dollars faster than allowing the kinds of cover-ups that I'm telling you about to continue. We have got to be a country that inspires confidence, not viewed as a country that's a confidence man. And that's how we are viewed now. And, and the part that concerns me the most, that concerns me the most is that I've been working this problem now since I was thrown illegally out of the World Bank. I, you know, I don't want to bore your listeners. Just take it from me. There was no grounds to fire me. It was totally illegal 
what what happened to me. And I stayed with the problem because I knew about the stakeholder analysis and that the World Bank legal department is at the very hub of legality in the international financial system. And when you have a corrupt legal regime inside the World Bank, which is what we had, that it has got to be cleaned out. So I, I couldn't walk away from the problem. It's not like I'm a troublemaker. I like to, you know, I like, I'm, you know, my husband says, look, Karen, I mean, get real. You've been working this problem now since 2007. You're not getting anywhere. You're not getting any younger. You know, throw in the towel. And I said, Barry, when I throw in the towel, that is when we have a currency war. I will not throw in the towel. I will be dragged kicking and screaming off the stage, I will not throw in the towel. So that's what's going on now. And what concerns me the most is in the process of staying with this problem, I uncovered something which made me very, very concerned. And what I uncovered is the fact that there is systematic disinformation given to the American public on a massive scale, and they are prevented, prevented from learning what they need to know. Oh, I would that agree. means that democracy is very, very vulnerable. I, I, I look at the data that's being released, uh, and I don't think you can even trust that. Uh, for example, uh, the unemployment figures coming out of the United States. The media quotes the E3 figure, which is somewhere around 7.5, 7.6% unemployment. But that's irrelevant uh, compared to the E6 uh, data, which includes the underemployed, those people that used to be engineers that are now working two, three part-time jobs, the underemployed. Those people that have absolutely given up looking for work, when you calculate, when you look at the E6, which is never released by the mainstream media, the E6 shows the unemployment rate in the United States up near 20%. And then you look at inflation. Of course, uh, you know, they had the CPI, uh, which has been sort of manipulated over the years. I don't even know if it's a, a real uh, indicator of what the inflation rate is. Uh, I, I don't know anybody that believes that we're, you know, at 1% or 2% inflation. Anyone who fills up at the gas tank or goes to the grocery store these days or pays college tuition knows for sure inflation is not at 2%. We can't even believe what the government is telling us in terms of the economic data. Would you agree? Yes, and I'll raise you one. I have been to the very heart of the accounting profession. I have been to the very heart of the legal profession. I have been to the ethics of the accounting profession and the ethics of the legal profession, and I can tell you there is no there there. So we had better intervene, all of us, and we had better oversee the legal profession and we had better oversee the accounting profession. We can't leave it to them anymore to self-police because they do not get the job done. Karen, are you, uh, are you at all f fearful uh, of, of what might happen to you? I know you've been arraigned and you're going to be, uh, the hearing is in a, in a little over a week's time before the U.S. Justice Department on these unlawful entry charges. I mean, are you concerned that they may trump up some other charge and just try and bury you? What I'm saying is I'm saying to your listeners, you had better get my back because I'm not there for me. I'm there for your kids. What can we do? What can we how can we help? <laughs> you better mobilize the world. And you better keep me out of jail. Well, uh, Godspeed then. And uh, let's all gather together and let's help keep. Karen Hudez out of jail. Uh, let me uh, alert you to Karen's uh, website or, or give you her website. It's K-A, 
Hudes, H-U-D-E-S. So that's K-A-H-U-D-E-S dot net. There you can learn all about uh, Karen Hudes and uh, what she's trying to do and uh, the, the corruption at the World Bank. And there's contact information for her there as well. So so get in touch with Karen Hudes, K-A-Hudes, K-A-H-U-D-E-S dot net. And show your support. Uh, better yet, uh, email uh, your MP, uh, the, the prime minister's office, or if you're listening down in the United States, your congressman, your senator, and let them know. You know what's going on. So Godspeed to Karen Hudes. You know, we, we really need to honor whistleblowers. And I think Karen Hudes joins a long list of tremendous whistleblowers. These are people that are alerting the public at great personal risk to the corruption that's going on. Uh, you, you could start with people like Peter Buxton with the United States Public Health Service. 1966, you may not be familiar with Peter Buxton. This is the guy that exposed the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. The United States Public Health Service, which later became the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, they were... Sub- they were they took this uh, population of African-American men who had syphilis and some of them, they told them they were treating them for the syphilis and they never did. They lied to them. And this went on. People say, oh, that was back in the 40s. That couldn't happen today. That went on for 30, more than 30 years, up into the 1970s. This heinous experiment was going on. And of course, the great Daniel Ellsberg, who along with Anthony Russo, leaked the Pentagon Papers which revealed uh, endemic practices of deception by previous administrations and contributed to the eventual erosion of public support for the, uh, for the war in Vietnam. Daniel Ellsberg, another great whistleblower. Up until 2005, he was known simply as Deep Throat, and later, we found out, shortly before he died, W. Mark Felt was the gentleman who leaked information about United States President Richard Nixon's involvement in Watergate course, the scandal would eventually lead to the resignation of the president. Jeffrey Wigand. Do you remember Jeffrey Wigand? Who worked for uh, Williams and Brown Tobacco Company. And then, of course, in a, a famous 60 Minutes interview in 1996, he said the company intentionally manipulated the level of nicotine in cigarette smoking a smoke to addict, to addict smokers. He claimed he was subs- uh, subsequently harassed and received anonymous death threats. Do you remember the, uh, the 1999 film The Insider with Russell Crowe? That was the Jeffrey Wigan story. Brown Williamson was a, a tobacco company. One of my favorite whistleblowers, unfortunately, he was suicided, if you know what I mean, Gary Webb. This was um, back in the uh, 1980s. He's exposed what he called the Dark Alliance, a 20,000-word three-part investigation series alleging the Nicaraguan drug traffickers had sold and distributed crack cocaine in Los Angeles during the 1980s. He implicated the CIA, saying they directly aided drug dealers to raise money for the Contras by selling crack in the inner cities in the United States. And then in 2004, Gary Webb was found dead from Two gunshot wounds to the head. Think about that. You commit suicide, two gunshot wounds to the head. That's what they call being suicided. A tip of the hat to Gary Webb. Karen Hudes, another great whistleblower. 
Let's honor them. It's something to aspire to be, a whistleblower. If you find corruption, expose it. If you find an injustice, try to stop it. If someone shows you the path to truth, follow it. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Took the mighty Aphrodite to the airport today. She's on her way to Athens right now as we speak, flying somewhere over the Atlantic. We'll get in there later tonight and then uh, drive down to Kalamata. And uh, I'm hoping in about a month's time, actually not hoping, I'm planning on it, uh, July 9th, I'm making my way over there with uh, my two little guys, my twin boys, North and Zach. And uh, we're going to be down there in Kalamata for about five weeks. And we're uh, working on, in fact, that's one of the reasons uh, the Mighty Aphrodite went over there, uh, is to try to hook up with some locations down there uh, prior to my arrival so that I can do some programs. So the Conspiracy Show will be coming to you live from Kalamata, uh, Greece, sometime in July, August. So that's what we're working on. I like to say, going back to Greece, back to the scene of the crime, if you will. I mean, that country is just being looted. Looted. Uh, of course, recently we talked to uh, Karen Hudes, the whistleblower at the World Bank. And uh, I think that's a perfect example of uh, uh, Greece being set up as a, uh, in, uh, caught up in a debt snare. Forced to borrow uh, billions from the European Central Bank. Uh, and then, in order to pay it back... They have to institute these crushing austerity measures, which include selling off publicly owned assets. Now, I'm a, I'm a conservative. I'm not a socialist. I don't believe that the state should be involved in a lot of things like airlines. And, and uh, I think you can, you can sell, uh, you privatize certain public utilities if it's done in the correct way. But what's happening in Greece? Uh, I mean, the, the country is literally being looted. So I'm back to the scene of the crime, if you will. Uh, so listen for that coming up in uh, July and August, the Conspiracy Show coming to you live from Greece. The other thing I wanted to mention here quickly before we usher in Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who joins us the second Sunday of every month, our paranormal investigator extraordinaire. Uh, I have, I've known this for a long time, I have the greatest uh, listeners and I get some amazing emails and they're always passing uh, along tremendous information t- uh, to me. And I just recently received this uh, f- from uh, someone. And back in 
2009. Buzz Aldrin, right? The second man to walk on the moon. This is the guy that's the commander of the uh, Apollo 11 uh, uh, module. And uh, after Neil Armstrong takes his immortal steps on the moon, or did he? (laughs) Uh, Then, of course, Buzz Aldrin had his turn. Well, back in 2009, he wrote a book, sort of a tell-all book, talking about his personal struggles, his battles with addictions and so forth, and what it was like being in the, uh, the Apollo program. Uh, he wrote a book called The Magnificent Desolation. And when the book was released, he did a number of interviews. And I'm going to play you a clip here. Tim is going to fire off this clip. I want you to pay close attention to what Buzz Aldrin says because it sounds like, to the casual listener, he's admitting The Apollo 11 lunar landing was a hoax. Have a listen and see if you can hear where he seems to be admitting that. He writes about his experience in an autobiography called Magnificent Desolation. All three of us decided not to participate in uh, Apollo uh, 11. Why would we go there? You just get overawed. You set up a, a series of expectations. And you're you're bound to get disappointed one way or the other. I thrived on addictive substances, uh, alcoholism, and clearly that began to predominate in my unstructured life. It sounds like it may have been more difficult just to plan one human life than it was to plan that mission to the moon, at least for you. Well, yeah, it, it certainly was. What a bodacious challenge confronting people on earth. We were obsessed with doing the best that we possibly could so that we wouldn't trip over the wire that goes out to the TV camera that's recording all that we're doing. That's Buzz Aldrin, whose new book is called Magnificent Desolation. Did you hear that? First of all, he says, we decided we weren't going to participate in Apollo 11. So, you know, take that at face value or whatever. Maybe it was taken out of context. But then... Then he says, we were trying so hard not to trip over the wire leading to the TV cameras. Does that not like sound as if he's admitting the lunar landing was shot on a sound stage? <laughs> anyway, that's amazing. That's an amazing clip, an amazing piece of tape. And uh, I thank uh, Sheldon. Uh, who sent that along, who found that and and, and sent that. I have not read Magnificent Desolation, but now I'm going to go back and check that out. Buzz Aldrin wrote that in 2009. All right. Uh, We're going to talk about one of my favorite topics. It's no secret. I love talking time travel. We're not exactly discussing time travel in this hour, although we are talking about phenomena relating to time or time slips and dimensional slips. If, If there's time in the hour, I'll tell you what happened to me This is going back about 12 or 13 years. I've told the story a number of times on different radio stations. Uh, My experience, personal experience, with a time or dimensional slip. Uh, And I'm also going to invite you to call into the program if you've had an experience with a time slip or a dimensional slip. Now, you may have had one but not given it a name. So... For the first part of this hour, we're going to figure out what a time slip and a dimensional slip is. And then if it sounds familiar, familiar, we're going to make the phone lines available to you because we'd love to hear what happened to you. And of course, it being this time of the month, we also, we always welcome in one of North America's preeminent paranormal researchers, 
to discuss her new work on the mysteries of time, sharing several cases of time slips, uh, when people experience being in a time frame different than their own. There are a number of celebrated cases, and she's going to discuss those. Always a pleasure to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Good evening, Richard. I'm doing well, thank you. I just got back today from a fabulous conference in Vermont. It was the annual convention of the American Society of Dowsers. Ah. And uh, they're very tuned in to things like uh, dimensional slips and and, uh, time shifts and things like that. Uh, In fact, my topic at at the convention was on interdimensional portals and, uh, you know, the warping of time and space that can occur when we encounter these zones right here on the planet. And these zones can be detected through dowsing? Sometimes, yes. If they have a lot of paranormal activity uh, and people have especially encounters with entities or they see UFOs, mysterious creatures, things like that, uh, they often can be doused, and uh, they exist out in the landscape. They can even exist in someone's backyard if we build a house in an area where these boundaries between our dimension and other dimensions seem to be very thin. Well, and th- these are areas where some of these, these time displacements can take place. And it's, uh, as, as you mentioned, it's not quite the same as time travel, where someone might deliberately move around uh, the timescape. Rather, they're, they're sort of accidental uh, visits to uh, perhaps our Earth in another time frame or parallel dimensions where um, things look almost the same as they should in our normal reality, but things are different. There's a different atmosphere. Uh, There's something off about the time when people come out of it. They might experience um, an abnormal passage of time has gone by, you know, missing time and that sort of thing. So we, we have a number of aberrational time displacement experiences that people have really reported for quite a long time. I think they're far more common than we might uh, ordinarily think. Uh, I, I want to dive right in with, with an amazing story that uh, you reported to me. Uh, and this has to do uh, – it came from, uh, allegedly, a, a lawyer uh, practicing primarily, I believe, in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, who was dealing with – who was asked to represent – uh, someone who had been uh, – I, I don't know what they call it in the U.S. Here we call it f- a Form 2 where someone had been committed to a, a mental health institution. And uh, can we start with that story? Because to me, this is just absolutely uh, – it left me gobsmacked. It is a very good story and it's contemporary too. And it was uh, research and investigated by a colleague of mine, Alon Strickler, who lives in the Baltimore area where I used to live. And uh, he was contacted by an attorney who's been very troubled by this case for years. It happened in June 1992, and he was contacted and asked to take on a pro bono case for a man who had been committed to uh, one of the state hospitals. And he'd been arrested on a a weapons possession charge. He had an old-fashioned Derringer gun, like the kind that came out of the Wild West. And uh, vagrancy was another charge against him. He'd had ammunition. 
and he was um, apparently in his 30s. He, he gave his name. He said his name was Morris Winthrop, and um, he said that he was from New Jersey, and he had he'd lived most of his life in New York City and had no idea how he had arrived in Baltimore. He was dressed in clothing that the attorney later found out through his own research was typical of the 1870s to 1880s. And this man had a very unusual appearance. He, he had these very striking, deep violet eyes, um, a very pale complexion, this wispy blonde hair. And uh, even though the medical professionals sort of assumed that he was suffering some sort of trauma and shock, because he had no recollection of how he got from New York to Baltimore, the attorney said that, that this Morris Winthrop seemed to be in full possession of his faculties. He seemed to know exactly what was going on, and there was something just very odd about him. Well, uh, no sooner had his uh, initial interviews been done then he gets a call, the attorney gets a call saying his services are no longer needed and people are just kind of very secretive about what happened and why. But he learns through his own investigations again that Morris Winthrop mysteriously disappeared without a trace after eating an evening meal and his clothing uh, was left behind. But his other possessions, he had like a, a silver cigarette case, um, were missing. And the attorney tried to find out for a long time exactly what happened. Let me just jump in, Rosemary, because I understand the lawyer actually, I believe, went to, to New York, where this gentleman claimed he was from, and did some investigating. And we'll find out how that played out as we discuss time slips, dimensional slips, and get some stories of, uh, from callers as well. This fascinating subject we delve into here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, paranormal researcher, the author of nearly 50 books and counting on a wide range of paranormal uh, supernatural topics. We're discussing uh, time slips and dimensional slips, and we'll open up the phone lines and make them available to you uh, now. Uh, If you have uh, a personal experience with a time slip, missing time, or some uh, time-related a strange time-related phenomena or dimensional slip, if you will. And uh, time permitting, I'll, I'll share one of mine as well. Now, Rosemary, you, you were talking about this uh, lawyer uh, who was uh, asked, this is about 20 years ago, asked to represent uh, this uh, uh, strangely dressed individual who was residing at a, a state hospital in, in, in Baltimore uh, who was awaiting a trial. He was uh, on uh, placed there on a weapons charge. He had some sort of vintage... 1870, 1880 era Marlon Derringer uh, pistol. He was dressed like someone from the 1870s or 80s. Kind of a strange looking individual. No hair on his face, no eyebrows, no stubble. Uh, uh, Violet uh, penetrating eyes. Uh, And then all of a sudden he disappears. This is according to someone who worked at the state official or at the state hospital who contacted the lawyer uh, and saying that he just simply vanished. No trace. So what happened? This lawyer tried to find out who this odd individual was, and uh, this Winthrop Morris, and, and what did he discover when he started doing a little digging? 
He hired a private investigator. He got almost obsessed by this case. And here's the shocker of what he uncovered. There was, in 1877, a record of a 32-year-old single man named Morris Winthrop living in New York City who vanished without a trace and left all of his possessions behind in Manhattan. And for this man, dressed in 1870s clothing with the name of Morris Winthrop, uh, to suddenly appear in Baltimore in 1992 and have no recollection of how he got there and then mysteriously vanish again, it raises more than eyebrows. It's one of the most startling cases of evidence uh, in support of time displacement. Now, whether Morris Winthrop deliberately uh, was able to do that or accidentally fell through uh, a time-dimensional gap of some sort, I think it was an accidental sort of thing. Although the the attorney said he he wasn't disoriented, he he wasn't confused or lost. Uh, He seemed to be very calm and in full possession of his faculties. Well, I I was so intrigued by this story that I ran it in in my newsletter, Strange Dimensions. And uh, then another colleague of mine, who's a ufologist, suggested that maybe Morris Winthrop wasn't human, that he was an alien, because uh, some of these ETs who are said to be visiting the planets, like the Nordics, are known for being time travelers. And uh, the idea behind that might be that uh, here was one of these alien visitors who was uh, cruising around the human timescape, uh, doing observations and and uh, other kinds of acti- interactions with human beings. So there are a lot of intriguing possibilities with this case. Yes, I, uh, as strange as it may seem, I would almost have to rule out a, a, a time traveler in in the sense that this was someone from the 1870s who stepped into a time machine and traveled into the future, that being 1992. Uh, first of all, the odds that they would have some sort of uh, you know time travel capability in the late 19th century uh, seems rather unlikely. Let's assume that they you know that we have the capability of time travel now. Uh, I was just discussing that with uh, discussing this with a, a gentleman who's sitting in on the show tonight. Um, Ronald Mallet, of course, the, um, the theoretical physicist from the University of Connecticut has pointed out, and he's trying to work on a time machine, that you can't travel back further in time than the, the time when you actually develop the technology and switch the machine on. So, uh, again, as strange as it may seem, I would, I would, I would think the best explanation, if, if this is in fact a true story, would have to be uh, some... ET civilization that has time travel capability and could jump backwards and forwards and, and, and so forth. That really would be the best explanation for this case. It's markedly different from other kinds of time displacements that people have experienced, which in parapsychology are often called cases of retrocognition, where we have a, a, a visionary bleed-through or a sudden sense of being in another place in time. And uh, one of the most famous cases illustrating that occurred in 1901, and uh, it's called the Versailles haunting in parapsychology, and uh, it it concerned two English women who went to visit Versailles. They were academics, and they were on a 
holiday, and they were walking around on the grounds, and uh, suddenly they feel like they're in a very eerie atmosphere. The, the, the atmosphere is like dead, it's quiet, it's unnatural, it's, it's oppressive. And uh, they notice uh, people in period costumes, and initially they assume that, oh, maybe these were uh, staff, you know, to add to the atmosphere of the place uh, for tourists. Um, and they see buildings that were unfamiliar to them, uh, and and um, they concluded later that they had had some sort of see-through into the past to the days of uh, King Louis the Fifteenth, uh, because when they went back to Versailles in a later time, the buildings that they had seen had existed at one time, but but were no longer there, and. Uh, People were not dressed in, in period clothing. Well, then they discovered through their research that other people had had similar experiences at Versailles, uh, almost like um, it exists in some, some sort of time-space dimensional warp where if you're there under the right conditions, perhaps in the right state of mind, you might see things the way they were during uh, those days of Louis the, the 15th. Uh, these sorts of experiences are more common, and they they last usually a, a brief period of time, sometimes just a minute or two, sometimes a little longer in the case of the English women. Um, it's a, a different variety of the time-dimensional slip than the Morris Winthrop case. So it, this actually uh, could explain the uh, you know ghostly apparitions. We're not actually seeing ghosts. What we're... we're, we're, we're peeking into or getting a, a rare glimpse of some portal uh, where the present is colliding with the past. And we're not seeing ghosts, per se. We're actually sort of entering into this time warp. I think that's the case. And what distinguishes these time slips from uh, seeing a residual haunting where you're look you're seeing apparitions you know the residues of things left behind is that people always report a market ch- a sudden shift and a market change in the atmosphere they describe things as being eerie uh, sometimes unusually silent there's an unusual absence of what they would expect to be normal activity um, they suddenly feel like they've they've gone through some shift although Many times things look nearly normal, uh, but they're not quite the same. Um, in this case with the English women, they, they actually saw things from the past. Sometimes I think people get shifted into a parallel dimension where there's almost an exact duplicate of our reality, but things are just slightly out of place and out of sync with what we would call ordinary time. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, paranormal researcher, investigator, author of nearly 50 books on uh, a wide range of subjects dealing with the supernatural, the paranormal, the metaphysical. Now, uh, this you were describing this sort of this parallel reality, and uh, which leads us into, you know, getting a little closer to home. You were talking about England and Versailles. Uh, I know you've, you, I mean, you've written a, a book about the strange things that occur in uh, the great state of West Virginia, and there is, in West Virginia, a, uh, a route, uh, I believe it's Route 55 down there, uh, where a number of uh, truckers 
have reported some strange things happening as they travel along that uh, that highway. Yes, um, and I've run into this before, too, where uh, people are traveling somewhere and they come across something very strange that seems out of place, and then uh, they go back and try and find it again, and it's nowhere to be seen. But uh, this one particular case, and I did talk to the trucker, uh, his, his name is Lake and Eubank, and he was just on a normal drive. He was um, heading along uh, Route 55 in um, a southern uh, part of West Virginia, and uh, doesn't make any turns, anything unusual, and then he suddenly finds himself where he shouldn't be. And he's driving and driving. It's taking him so long to get where he's going. The landscape suddenly becomes unfamiliar. Uh, he hasn't seen this road before, but yet he hasn't taken any turn off the highway. And uh, just as he's getting kind of concerned uh, about, you know, that maybe surely he must have accidentally gotten off the road somehow, he finds himself... Uh, where he should have been in the first place, but he doesn't know how he got there. And uh, he also described kind of a weird atmosphere. Things looked different. There wasn't any other traffic. He drove by. He saw signs for towns that were familiar, but there was nobody around there. There was no activity. There was no animal noise, no traffic. It was like the planet was suddenly deserted. So later he tried to re- go back and find that what he was convinced in his own mind was just a mistake he made. Uh, you know, maybe he got fatigued, you know, took a wrong turn. He could never find that weird stretch of road again. So he posted it on the Internet and asked uh, if other people had experienced the same and heard from other truckers who said, yes, in that very spot on that state route, they also had had weird displacements and had gotten strangely lost somehow. And he he also heard from drivers around the world who described similar experiences in other locales. Well, uh, well, we'll throw that open to uh, to any of the listeners out there, truck drivers. If you uh, if you can tell us about a, a lonely stretch of road or or, or, uh, or a rural route down in the United States or here, up here in Canada, anywhere where uh, you've traversed and found some strange, I don't know, time slip, dimensional slip, something just quite not not quite right uh, during your journey. Now, this uh, this uh, Route Fifty Five. Uh, it goes through an area of, of uh, West Virginia where the confluence of the Seneca Creek and a branch of the Potomac River, it's called uh, Seneca Caverns. And somehow this, uh, this is tied up with an Indian legend. What's the connection between the Indian legend at Seneca Rocks and this apparent dimensional or time slip, Rosemary? Well, I, making a direct connection uh, is a little tricky between the legend and the time slips. But what it points to is that the area is quite haunted. In fact, the Seneca Caverns themselves have uh, haunting activity in them where people experience phantom footsteps and strange noises. Um, this, the area around the caverns called Seneca Rocks has a strange vibe to it. People talk about it having a, an eerie uh, atmosphere. It's uh, also within uh, a vast forest area 
called the Monongahela, which has all kinds of things going on. And it's a very dense forest, and uh, there are a lot of mysterious creature sightings in it, a lot of Bigfoot sightings. So these are indicative of these, like, interdimensional portal areas where a lot of warping of time and space seem to go on quite a bit. But the legend uh, is um, about a princess who uh, was quite beautiful, and she had uh, lots of, of men interested in, in marrying her so that they could become the successor to the chief. And uh, so she didn't want to choose one. She challenged them to a test that whoever could climb to the top of these Seneca rocks would win her hand. And so seven of, of them took up the challenge and one made it. And he did marry the princess and become the next chief of the tribe. Um, but people have in this area uh, described these like twilight zone fields. And uh, I've run into other areas like this too, where uh, there are often um, legends about uh, mysterious visitors, about other hauntings, uh, fairy creatures. Uh, these are also areas where people often see a lot of UFO activity as well. Okay, we've talked about you know uh, uh, people who have found themselves in the midst of some sort of a time slip. Um, objects too can get caught up in in these time slips or dimensional slips. What uh, is an an apport, Rosemary? An apport. An apport is an object that mysteriously appears out of nowhere. And there's a term for objects that disappear. It's called asport. But that's kind of gotten out of date. And people now use the term apport to describe objects that either appear or disappear mysteriously. And they're quite common in certain haunting cases. I run into them a lot in some of the very strange cases that I take on. Uh, fairies are often attributed to this sort of activity where uh, so suddenly you realize that something's gone missing, uh, you can't find it anywhere, and it's not a case of just forgetting where you put it because when it reappears, it shows up in a very, very strange location that it should never, ever have gotten into. And uh, another case that uh, I ran in conjunction with these time slips um, in my, my last newsletter was a case of a, a car report, an entire car, where uh, a, a woman was going shopping and uh, she was driving around looking for a parking place. It was kind of bad weather, slushy snow on the ground, and she didn't want to walk very far. She couldn't find one. Has to park further away. She comes out of the store and suddenly everything is dead quiet. It's just weird. The, everything kind of looks funny. The street's very quiet. There's um, no traffic like there should be. Sort of a case of, dude, where's my car? And exactly. We'll, we'll, she goes, we'll, okay, and we'll, Rosemary? <laughs> we'll pick up on that. On the other side, Rosemary Ellen Guiley talking time slips and dimensional slips here on The Conspiracy Show. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us. This is kind of a treat. Normally we have uh, Rosemary sort of for a half an hour, but this is one of those topics uh, uh, that, uh, well, I'm hoping it's going to generate uh, uh, some interest and people will call in with their own accounts or personal experiences with time slips, dimensional slips. Uh, you've been caught up in some sort of a strange time warp. 
Now, uh, before uh, we were so rudely interrupted, Rosemary, <laughs> we were talking about this this uh, this uh, individual who had parked a car. I believe she went into a mall, she came out, and it was just a very eerie, sort of quiet situation going on when she came out. It was like she came out of a, it's an entirely different place, yet, you know, and where is her car? It's nowhere to be seen. Uh, and were, were there other cars in the parking lot when she came out, or was it just completely empty? There were other cars, and in fact, at, at first she thought, well, I forgot where I parked my car. But she saw her own footsteps in the slush, uh, the, the slushy snow, and, so, and, and she walks to the spot where she had parked her car, gone. Then she thought it, it was stolen. So she starts looking around frantically for, the, for, you know, to see if there's, you know, find the car or find help or something. And she finds the car parked where she originally wanted to park and uh, in order to be closer to the, to the store. Uh, and it was like her entire car went walkabout. It got apported from uh, one parking place to the other. It's, it's, it's almost like she stepped into um, a, another dimension where she got the parking spot that she, in another dimension, she got the parking spot she wanted. So it raises some interesting questions, like do, do you, does a person then move into another dimensional reality if we're constantly spinning off parallel dimensions with our actions and decisions and, and activities? Do we then enter that dimension or do we just experience it briefly? How are we affected by these things? If there is no such thing as, as linear time and we have these bleed-throughs into other realities and, and other pieces of the timescape, what does that do to our reality? So these, and these alternate realities that you've been describing, uh, these dimensional slips into an alternate reality, if that's what we're dealing with, they seem to be devoid of activity. Like there's nothing going on. We mentioned you mentioned this this uh, a truck driver on on Route 55 in West Virginia, and he talked about uh, the, you know coming into these towns, but there was nothing there. There was no there was no even there wasn't even a center line anymore on the highway. There were no guardrails. There were no people. There was no other traffic. It's so, almost like it's an incomplete reality, and uh, so one of the things that I thought might be operational here is that. Some of these time slips or in dimensional slips, they're they're not fully complete. It's like we we enter literally into a twilight zone or a limbo area where we're in another world. Uh, we're not entirely in our reality, and we're not entirely in another reality, and that's why the atmosphere is so weird and oppressive. Why there's an absence of activity because uh, we're not com- we're not in any one reality completely. The other, the other uh, uh, type of phenomenon when we're talking about time slips is missing time. And, and, and of course, that has been associated with the alien abduction uh, phenomenon. But are there instances of time slips that really don't appear to have anything to do with an alien abduction um, that you're familiar with? Has that ever happened to you? Well, I've, I've never been abducted to my knowledge. Um, I have had um, distortions of time where uh, I have felt like I've been in uh, expansions of time rather than contractions of time through missing time. 
But the missing time phenomenon is common to the, especially the ET abduction experience. And my, my own theory on that is that the abductions uh, take a person into another reality, a, a, another dimension. And time operates differently in these other dimensions where uh, we are in the presence of these entities. And when we are returned to our own reality, uh, that's where we experience the missing time. All right, I'll share you, if time permits, my time slip or dimensional slip when we come back. And, uh, Rosemary, see if you can make head or tails of that. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley discussing time slips. Stay with us. Next week on the program, David Hatcher Childress. This is a, He's like a real-life Indiana Jones, ex- world explorer, in fact, founder of the World Explorers Club. They've got a magazine uh, with some incredible tales. And also the man behind... Uh, Adventures Unlimited Press, which is one of my favorite book publishers. Uh, people like Joseph Farrell, one of my favorite authors, is, is published there often. Anyway, uh, David Hatcher Childers will be on the program to talk about his, his travels. Uh, that's coming up next week. Right now, of course, Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us as we discuss time and dimensional slips. Phone lines available to you if you've had an experience, a time warp time displacement. So very quickly, Rosemary, about 15 years ago, not, no, uh, about 13 years ago, newly married, working at another radio station, taking my regular route home to my house at the time in north, the north part of Toronto. And uh, that, I remember this distinctly. Some of the other uh, details are a little foggy, but I remember uh, Mick Jagger had just come out with a CD. It was called Goddess in the Doorway. And I was, I was liking the, the, the CD and I'd been playing it all that week. And starting at, you know, I'd get out of the parking lot at the radio station, start with track one, and then by the end of the, you know, the week, I knew what track would should be playing when I got home. Uh, and so that was the way I was able to measure the time that elapsed from the moment I left the radio station to the moment I pulled into the driveway at my at my place. So uh, I'm... Uh, People outside of Toronto, these names won't mean anything, but those in the Toronto area, I'm driving along Eglinton Avenue east towards Leslie, and then I would take Leslie up to York Mills and then York Mills to my place. So uh, uh, here I am driving along uh, north on Leslie, and I knew it would take it would take about 10, 11 minutes, I guess, to get up to York Mills, and then I would turn right. So all of a sudden, I'm a few tracks into the uh, the CD, and I know, okay, by this time I should be at about Lawrence Avenue. All of a sudden, I look up, and I realize I have no idea where I am. This is very disconcerting. There should be a, I should be at Lawrence Avenue because I'm on track three, and there's the, there's, where's the Esso station on the, on the east corner, and where's the, the, the big condo building? It's not there. I'm, in fact, I'm looking at a, an overpass. I realize uh, I'm way north of York Mills. I'm at, like past the 401 or uh, coming up on the 401. There's the 401 overpass. And I was totally shocked and shaken. And I, st- I was stopped at a red light and I, I'm looking around saying, how did I get here so quickly? I shouldn't be here. I was traveling at the same rate of speed, you know, 60 kilometers, 30 miles an hour. And uh, I was in such shock, the, the light went uh, turned green, and I'm still sitting there at the intersection thinking, what the heck is going on? Uh, and someone had to honk the horn to get me going, and then I had to turn around and come back. And to this day, I have no idea how I got past my turnoff so quickly. Didn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. What do you make of that, Rosemary? It sounds like you had some sort of 
time and dimensional slip. And sometimes I wonder uh, how many missing persons cases are related to these sorts of things. You know, people who maybe have a, a, a real serious displacement and can't get back out of it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I don't believe that I've been abducted by aliens, and I, I, uh, I suppose I could have a, um, a re- some sort of a regression, although I think I would rather not know if that were the case, uh, because I've, you know, I've met enough abductees, and it's no picnic. I mean, that's not a life one would normally choose uh, to know that you were abduct- an, abdu- an abductee. Uh, but I, I really have no other explanation for it. There's no way I should have been past the 401. Uh, I should have only been at, at Lawrence, which is, you know, miles south of there, given the amount of time that I'd been traveling. Uh, it never happened again, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think most people uh, are familiar with that uh, phenomenon when you're driving for maybe an hour from destination A, from point A to destination B, and you arrive there. And all of a sudden you realize, I don't remember the last hour. How did I get here? Now, maybe an hour has passed, but you have no memory of actually driving from point A to point B. That's happened to a lot of people. What's that all about? Well, ufologists would immediately uh, suggest that some sort of abduction has taken place. And that accounts for the the absence of recollection. Uh, There are cases of uh, abductees who have repeated experiences, and, and when they are regressed, then they, they do recover these memories of abductions during periods like that. I don't think that's the only explanation. I think that um, we do enter these liminal areas between dimensions, and that could affect our memory, our uh, perception of uh, how we're traveling through physical space. Uh, we, we don't know enough about these, these sorts of things to, to um, be able to understand them or even predict them. And they can't be predicted, even though some people do have similar experiences in the same area, like the trucker discovered along this uh, state route in West Virginia. Oftentimes when people try and go back and have the same experience again just to validate it for themselves, they can't. It's like the conditions have to be just right for it. Your story reminded me of uh, an experience that I had in England some years ago. I was traveling around Cornwall with a friend and a lot of spooky places in Cornwall. And uh, one night we uh, went to a village and uh, I remember the road that we drove on. It was one of those spooky little Ichabod Crane kind of roads. And it took from, from the turnoff from the main road to get down to this village, took us about 25 minutes. And we commented as we were driving, you know, on the, on the way, the, how spooky the trees looked, the atmosphere was strange. We get to the pub. Uh, the pub is weird. The people are weird. It's haunted. Um, my camera went off by itself. Uh, just kind of strange things happened. And we ate. We had a nice meal. We left. And we took exactly the same road back to get to the main road. There's only one way in and out. And it took us five minutes to get to the road. And we couldn't account for it. Like, how did it only take us such a short time to get out and it took us so long to get in yeah that's that sounds very similar to mine although you were on foot 
uh, which I think would even be more disconcerting. Because well, when you're behind the we wheel, were driving, oh, you were driving. Actually, yeah, ah, we okay. were driving, and uh, it. You know, we tried to say to ourselves, well, we we were just absorbed in conversation, or, uh, you know, we just didn't notice, but it puzzled both of us. I'll say. Uh, Let's grab a call here. John is in Oshawa tonight, Oshawa, Ontario. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, John. You're on the air. Yeah, I find it kind of interesting, your your program. uh, Did you see that article that was in the Toronto Star here within the past week about uh, where strange people are walking amongst us? No, I, I missed that. When you say strange people are walking amongst us, you, what do you mean? People that are well, strange. All it, all it said that they that there's actually strange people walking amongst us. Well, one only needs to uh, you know venture downtown on a late Friday night, and <laughs> that's that's bound to be true. But I mean, <laughs> do you? I mean, do you do you mean well, people I found that? Well, kind of interesting that they that they uh, they claim that it's actually uh, there. Is, we are bringing there is things coming from outer orbit. That uh, and uh, I'm I, I I just kind of wondering, you know, I I don't know whether I I don't know whether I would realize if I was, I mean, uh, I, I've been uh, I've been going to the doctor uh, uh, for the past uh, week about uh, things that are that I think I think I leave my keys in such and such a place and they're not there, and I said to my doctor, my am I getting Alzheimer's? He said he looked at me and he laughed. He said, no, John, he says, you're not getting Alzheimer's. But uh, he's ordered some testing. And uh, the strange things that are happening that, uh, I think I'm, that I think I see something and then I don't. Well, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe those car keys that you, you were certain you put on the, you know, the, the table in the front hall, uh, you know, maybe they, they've uh, fallen into some sort of a dimensional or time slip. Who knows? I mean, man, many of us have, have, have had that experience, Rosemary, where you put something down and uh, you go back and it's not there. And then you go back looking for it again and it's all of a sudden it's there again. I, that happened to me. I, I was working at my, uh, uh, my mom's place in Brantford years ago and I, took, I had this sledgehammer. Uh, I, I forget, I was putting stakes in the ground next to a tree or something. I had this sledge, a heavy sledge, and I leaned it up against the garden shed. And uh, went back to to get it like ten minutes later, and it was gone. And uh, asked my mom, "Did you take? No, I didn't. Did you put it back in the shed? No, no. Anyway, uh, so it was just completely gone. And then it ends up turning up, leaning against the shed about a week later, the exact place I'd put it. No explanation. That's in a port, right? It's in a port. And in earlier times, people would have said the fairies did it. You know, they're just playing tricks. And uh, I do think that spirits do those sorts of things, but uh, do these things also happen in some sort of strange shift of, of time and space? That's possible, too. Now, you're in, uh, in Connecticut, uh, but not far from you is, of course, uh, the Hudson Valley. Uh, I don't know if you would be considered part of the Hudson Valley, where you are. Uh, I'm very close to it, yes. Yeah. But there's a lot of strange sort of time slips seem to happen in and around uh, Hudson Valley. What's going on there, do you suspect? It's The whole Hudson Valley has uh, a long history for being very haunted, and uh, a lot of UFO activity. There was a big wave of UFOs back in the mid-'80s here. Actually, people still see them and uh, have all kinds of experiences um, with seeing craft and lights in the sky, having missing time, uh, having... Um, I'll, I'll describe a case that happened to um, 
a, a person I know who has had other kinds of experiences in the valley, but she's driving down the Taconic Highway, which uh, goes down the valley, and uh, she's at night, and she's she's uh, heading down uh, back to uh, New York, the New York City area, and um, she said normally at the time she was driving there would be heavy traffic, people going back to the city, but she's like the only person on the road. And it just feels very strange to her. And then a car comes up behind her, and it paces her. It doesn't pass her. And it starts to make her nervous, so she slows down a little. And she, the, the car behind her is very dark. She can't see the driver. And so she slows down. She thinks, oh, I just wish this car would pass me. And as soon as she thinks it, the car pulls out into the next lane and starts to pass her. And it pulls up alongside her very slowly. She still cannot see the driver. The, the windows are very, very dark. And it slowly goes past her. And uh, when it gets up ahead of her, she can see the license plate. And it's a vanity plate that says, I love UFOs. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but of course. Rosemary, always a pleasure. And uh, I, could, uh, I could talk time and dimensional slips uh, with you all night. Um, what's uh, what's next for you? Are you heading off to another investigation? Uh, in two weeks, I'm going out to Illinois to a big paranormal conference, Haunted America Midwest. There will be investigations during the weekend, so uh, I'm expecting uh, another good time out there. I go out every year for the conference, and uh, then I take uh, some time off in July for vacation, and I always go out to Seattle, visit family. Uh, I would, I'm so jealous of you going to Greece. I would love to see Greece again. I've only been there once. It's a fabulous country. Indeed. Well, let's, uh, I know you're off uh, on vacation yourself. Let's carve out a little time uh, to talk next month, Rosemary. Thanks so much for this. Thank you very much, Richard. Good night. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Tim Spreen, thanks for production. As always, back next week, David Hatcher Childress. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, wherever you are. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.